1: Welcome to the Colon Economics Report, a weekly look at financial and political topics relating to asset-based investing. Guests on this program pay no fees to appear, and guests and hosts disclose any equity interest in companies' profile. Now, the Colon Economics Report.
2: Welcome in to the weekend edition of the KE Report. Gordon Chad here, your host for this weekend show. On this weekend show, we are going to be focusing a bit more on the macro environment here, as we did have the inflation data out of the U.S. And quite frankly, markets, well, they continue to, I guess, broadly roll over at the start of the year, but uh, they are still hanging up quite close to all-time highs. And I think we're all trying to figure out just what direction markets go next, whether it is a move much higher or maybe a trading range for the first little bit of the year. We are kicking off this show with Jesse Felder, founder and editor of the Felder Report. Now Jesse, again, focused on the macro, focused on the CPI data. Headline and core came in at a 0.3% increase month over month. That was Pretty much right at expectations. So, Jesse, what did you take away from that inflation data that we got early on this year?
3: Well, actually, I got—I got to correct you. They both came in hotter than expected. I think the expectation for uh, CPI was 0.25% on core. It came in 0.31, so it did surprise to the upside, and I think when you look under the surface things like sticky price cpi running 4.6 percent annualized for the month of december and for the 12 months ended in december um, you have uh, super core inflation, which is services. Um, you know, it's it's a term that the Fed uses for services CPI less housing, still running right around five percent and has curled higher in the last few months. So there, so there's a sign you have median, you know, median CPI still running running hot. I think this this might be the first sign uh, uh, that. As many people have forecasted for at least a year now that the easy part of the disinflation is over the The hard part, the most difficult part is going to be bringing um, you know these numbers down from three down to two down to the fed 's target. It just seems to me that there are a lot of still underlying inflationary pressures you know namely wages still running 5% year over year a lot of that driven by union negotiations which have negotiated you know mu- massive wage increases so i i think there there are signs that in- the inflation battle isn't won yet and it seems like that the 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 stock market rally uh, at the end of the year was really a mission accomplished moment where investors really had already you know uh basically uh, said that you know inflation was uh, back to the Fed's target or was going to inevitably. Now, I think that narrative is probably going to come into question uh, this year as we, we see uh, inflation remain a little stickier than most bullish would probably hope for.
4: Well, Jesse, speaking of the market or different outlets talking about mission accomplished, we've had a lot of people that have been pointing to Janet Yellen and other Fed heads taking a victory lap that they've got their proverbial soft landing You've made the case to us in previous shows that you still see this year as the potential of having a stagflationary backdrop versus the soft landing narrative. Maybe dissect those two points of view and where you see the spread between them.
3: Well I do think we are just now entering the time and I and I had said uh, many times when we spoke last year that uh, recession was potentially a second half phenomenon. obviously that's been pushed pushed out and um, that that was that was wrong that was that was early. but I do still think that we are in this window of time where the interest rates the lag effect of of the rise in interest rates is really starting to 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 hit and you know you look at things like the inverted yield curve and the timing of those things when they start to have an impact on the economy is is right about now and so the delayed effect of monetary policy is just now hitting growth i believe and so the potential for for nominal economic growth uh, to decline is really significant at the same time if inflation remains relatively elevated then you have, like you said, a, a, the potential for a stagflationary type of economy where economic, real economic growth, is poor um, and potentially recessionary. At the same time, inflation remains elevated. And that's really the opposite of a soft landing for the economy, right? A soft landing for the economy is inflation comes down to the Fed's target without creating recession. So if you get inflation that does come down to the Fed's target and still get uh, a recessionary type of economy, that would be the opposite of a soft landing. And I think that's probably far more likely than a soft landing in the economy.
2: So, Jesse, in terms of inflation moving through this year, do you think it just stays at somewhat current levels? Or do you see a, another massive spike in inflation moving up to maybe 5 percent year over year numbers?
3: I, I think we are headed for another spike in inflation. I, I don't think it's a, it's going to happen this year. Um, I do think we probably could see inflation remain uh, above the Fed's target this year, It'll, it could bottom out somewhere closer to 3%, you know, in terms of core inflation and things and median, you know, CPI and whatnot. But probably, um, you know, another spike in inflation, if you look back at like the mid 70s, it was, you know, several years between these spikes in inflation. And I think, you know, I've, I've, I've used the analogy in the past that we're kind of in this era of I think we're going to look back at what I would call central bank speed wobbles, where the Fed is kind of overreacting um, to to, to shorter term dynamics, you know, overcorrecting, and so we're going to raise interest rates. And then if they you know do indeed lower them this year, even though inflation doesn't come back sustainably lower, they're opening the door to another rise in inflation. I I, I think you could argue that they already have with allowing the fast loosening of financial conditions on record, which is what we saw in the fourth quarter, right? Even though inflation remains elevated, really opens the door to a much bigger uh, and sustainable inflation problem. So like I said, I think we're still kind of seeing the effects of tightening a monetary policy on growth, which will also help to keep inflation uh, under wraps for a time. But the fact that the Fed is already, you know, talking about, uh, you know, returning to a more dovish kind of stance, even while these underlying inflation dynamics are still significant, suggests to me that, that uh, they're much more worried about protecting employment than they are preventing another spike in inflation, which means I think we'll probably end up with, with the latter.
2: So Jesse, if we carry this over to the markets, uh, looking back 2020, look, we all know what a crazy year that was with the COVID lockdowns and the crash in the markets and then recovery. But then 2021, i I'm looking at a chart here, moved about 30% higher throughout that year. 2022, we all remember how tough that year was where the S&P corrected about 30%. And then throughout last year, well, the S&P recovered all that. So it's been very, very volatile. Do you think there's any chance that this year is more of a digestion year where we get less volatility in the markets? I don't.
3: I think we're, we're in this alternating period, and I think we're probably looking at another 2022 type of environment. If you look back at what drove the market last year, it was the Magnificent Seven stocks. What drove them? It was the the hype over generative AI. This year, investors expect to see generative AI drive some significant revenue growth and earnings growth for these companies. So, you know, it's time for, you know, if that doesn't materialize, there's going to be a major disappointment. And I think that there aren't any signs that generative AI is driving any revenue growth just yet. I mean, Adobe has been a good example of this, where they've not been able to raise prices or charge for AI. They've just had to add it as a, a free feature to the products they're, they're already selling. So I think that this is the year where AI needs to either generate a bunch of top-line growth to validate the rally of last year or if it doesn't there's going to be a, a reappraisal and 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 if the reality doesn't meet the hype with ai you know a lot of these gains these companies have seen are going to evaporate
2: well, I have no doubt that we will continue to hear a lot about AI and the AI stocks this year. Jesse, we're out of time for this segment. We're having you back on next segment. So everyone, stick around. We're going to be Al right back. Al
1: Corlin's firm, A.B. Corlin & Associates Incorporated, provides consulting services to public companies on matters of regulatory compliance. To find out more, follow the link from www.kereport.com. The Corlin Economics Report will be back after this brief timeout. On finance and investing, this is the Corlin Economics Report.
2: All right, welcome back. Continuing to listen to the weekend edition of the KE Report, and we are continuing to chat with Jesse Felder. Now, Jesse, we touched on AI stocks at the tail end of last segment. Let's look ahead to this year, though, and any sectors that stand out to you that you think could be the outperformers for 2024?
3: Yeah, well, one question I like to ask myself regularly is what's the most hated sector in the market or the most hated stock in the market? And I think it's the natural resource companies right now. Nobody wants to own oil stocks. Nobody wants to own precious metals miners. And these kinds of natural resources uh, companies are the valuations are extraordinarily cheap a lot of them trade single digit pe ratios at the same time nasdaq 100 trades 30 times and the s&p 500 is well over 20 times it suggests to me that there's a real opportunity in these companies especially if as I suggested, inflation is going to remain relatively elevated. Um, I think there are signs that the demand for energy is is not going away. So many people, the bear case against energy stocks has been, well, uh, demand for fossil fuels is going to peak and roll over. That's not the case. All the, all the estimates of demand say it's going to hit new records this year and another new record in 2025. And you know there there's supply issues right I mean I know the Saudis are, are having to OPEC plus is having to you know retain or hold on to a lot of these cuts production cuts longer than people people thought, but I think the the real surprise for the for the energy markets is going to be the uh, the, the failing um, supply from u s producers right a lot of these these shale regions are seeing a peak production and are seeing wells run out a lot quicker. Than many analysts anticipated. The Permian is kind of the last one where we've still seen tons of growth, um, but it looks like it's it could be uh, you know not as sustainable as a lot of people hope. So if you have this dynamic of of kind of impinged uh, supplies at the same time, you know demand continuing hit record highs, it's very very bullish for uh, a super cycle in energy, which is something I've been talking about for three, four years now, Um, you know, there's also, you know, the the, the gold stocks, too, where where I think if we see inflation kind of uh, maintain uh, at an elevated pace, not even not even, you know, surge higher, but just fail to come back sustainably to the Fed's target. And the Fed is forced to taper quantitative tightening as they've been talking, or maybe even implement a few rate cuts, that's probably the most bullish scenario I could imagine for gold, um, and there's a lot of parallels to the 2018 to 2020 monetary cycle. The last time Powell pivoted late 18 was, you know, gold price bottomed and had a terrific run higher from about 12, 1300 an ounce to 2000, just over 2000. I think we're just entering a very similar monetary cycle for the gold price today.
2: So Jesse, in terms of those energy stocks, we have seen, as you said, record production out of the U.S., but you see declining rates there. And that record energy production has come off of less rigs. So we actually heard that some of these companies are being more efficient. In all fairness, the energy stocks have still done fairly well, though. If we look at XLE, that's at least trading in a much higher range than it was over the last couple decades. And it's the gold stocks that really don't to be making any headway, unfortunately. What do you think changes that narrative then? Is it simply prices exploding higher or does it translate into markets falling or something else happening in the financial world?
3: Yeah, I think right now markets spent last year pricing in a return to the pre-COVID paradigm of disinflation and low interest rates and significant monetary accommodation, right? That's what I think stock market bulls and people buying the Magnificent Seven think we're going back to what worked from 2009 to 2020. What I think where there's a disconnect is I don't think there's a very good chance that we're going back to anything like that. I think we've had, we've had a paradigm shift, a sea change, call it whatever you want, in inflation, and that's going to really tie the hands of the Fed and make it very difficult for them to stimulate in the way that they did from 2009 to 2020 and we're going to have we have you know these kind of secular inflation pressures so what worked in that decade is not going to work in the in the post pandemic decade what's going to work in this post pandemic decade is what worked in from 2002 to 2011, which was by natural resources. Um, and, and if you look at, you know, that bull market in oil prices and in, in gold price, the last major kind of super cycle in commodities, I think that's, you know, that's a really good parallel indication of, of where, what we're looking at for the rest of this, this decade is, uh, where we're going to see, uh, demand for a lot of these commodities, surprise on the upside and supplies are just Really, really constrained. Simply, for, simply because over the past decade, there's been no investment in in the supplies in these things, and so you have this supply-demand dynamic. Uh, you know, we've talked about this I think many times over the last year or two, where if you want a green revolution, you want all these things. That such you're going to have such significant demand for commodities that if you're not investing heavily in production right now, the prices have to go to the moon in order to in order to uh, to inspire that, that production. So I, I think, that, you know, I'm, a, I'm still a big believer in, in that we're in the early stages of the commodity super cycle. What gives me the most confidence right now about gold is a chart that I shared with you guys that shows the ratio of the HUI gold bugs index, the essentially, you know, gold miners um, index, to the gold price. And when you see the this ratio spike... And that's the miners leaving the gold price. It's usually a, a good sentiment signal that sentiment has become far too bullish um, towards gold. And we saw that in 2020, the first time, you know, gold tried to break out above 2000. We saw it again in uh, 2022 during that attempt at breaking out. What is so exciting to me about this is this ratio is is uh, testing the bottom of its range of the past decade, suggesting there is no interest in mining stocks, even though the gold price is now breaking out over 2,000. So to me, this suggests that That uh, there's still a lot of potential demand out there that the gold price needs to go up another few hundred dollars before you're going to see that type of embrace that type of overly bullish sentiment that would be indicative of a of a trading top Uh, that goes along with where we are in the monetary cycle that if the Fed's going to start tapering QT potentially you know implementing rate cuts it's very bullish for the gold price and the fact that nobody is buying gold in, in uh, with this kind of very bullish monetary outlook ahead of it is extremely bullish from bullish from a sentiment uh, contrarian standpoint
2: All right, Jesse, we'll wrap it up here. I know a lot of our listeners are sure waiting for those generalists, for any new investors to come into the gold sector. But, hey, maybe this is the year where that happens. Maybe everything just continues to move together in one kind of universal chart, too. Who knows? We'll all see. But, boy, oh, boy, there will be a lot for us to talk about this year and try to make sense out of any market moves Jesse, great chatting with you. Thanks for taking time on this weekend show. We'll chat with you next month. Have a great rest of your weekend. Thanks, guys. You have a great weekend, too.
1: To find out more about today's guests, visit us on the web at www.kereport.com. You're listening to the Corlin Economics Report. We'll be back in a moment.
8: You are
2: listening to GCN. Visit GCNLive.com
9: today.
5: Wellness and self care doesn't have to be complicated.
8: update. President Biden calls the strikes against the Houthi rebels in Yemen a success. The president on a campaign stop at a school in Allentown, Pennsylvania. The DOD, Department of Defense, says to expect some sort of Houthi rebel retaliation. But the group, backed by Iran, has been attacking ships in the Red Sea for months. The Biden administration, along with military partners in Britain, finally carrying out massive strikes in Yemen.
10: I would hope that they don't retaliate, but we're- prepared in the event that they do
8: that is lieutenant general douglas sims at a pentagon press conference late friday afternoon iowa under a winter weather warning freezing snowy iowa the center of the political world for the next few days ahead of the caucuses on monday all of the republican candidates busy campaigning despite the weather and i'm laura winters usa news
9: com gcnfood.com
1: Adding unique reporting on markets and companies since 1990. This is the Corlin Economics Report.
2: All right, welcome back. Continuing to listen to the weekend edition of the KE Report. And in the second half of this show, we are chatting with Mark Chandler, Managing Partner at Bannockburn Global Forex. And I'm glad we waited to record this segment until Friday because there's a lot more for us to talk about now on Friday Mark, I first want to start off with a recap of the inflation data. On Thursday, we had the CPI data that came in that was slightly higher than estimates. And then on Friday, the PPI data that came in that was slightly lower than estimates and showed again another decline month over month in PPI. I believe that's three months in a row. So, Mark, as we have these two inflation data points and again, one came in higher than estimates, one came in lower than estimates. What's your takeaway from kind of the net impact or the net look at inflation in the U.S.?
11: Yeah, so first I'd say that the CPI is by far more important than the PPI. And partly because, the, of course, the Federal Reserve uh, targets consumer inflation, even though it does it through the personal consumption expenditure deflator, PPI is really about commodity prices and it's interesting that you point out commodity prices are soft, uh, falling uh, for the third time month over month. But it's really the CPI uh, that I think is the, is the key. And the amazing thing to me is that despite, as you mentioned, the slightly firmer than expected CPI, the markets did not care. And by not caring, I mean that two things. One is that U.S. yields fell further. I had the two-year note yield down about 20 basis points this week. And I'd say that after CPI and we've had some Fed officials uh, like Cleveland Fed President Mester, who who actually votes this year, even though she's going to retire in the middle of the year, she pushed against uh, the view of a March rate cut. But the market still has like, the bit of its teeth and is running with it. Uh, I think we finish up this week with about an 80% chance of a 25 basis point rate cut in March. And my own guess is that it's, a bit, it's still too early to be that confident. Uh, we're gonna, of course, we're going to get more data before the March meeting. But at the end of the day, I think that uh, the, the, market, the, the markets need something much more solid for it to really – rethink about the march cut and we could see that data next week we get we go back to the real sector data from the inflation but before we just leave the inflation we maybe we should mention about what people now call a super core this is mentioned by Powell, and other fed officials this is the core rate which in the u.s we exclude food and energy and it excludes housing that rose by 0.4 percent you're not going to see it on the tables on the news warriors they don't track it like this but the super core, core X housing, up 0.4%. And that turns into a 3.9% year-over-year gain, uh, essentially the same as in November. And because Fed officials like Powell have cited it, and it's still so elevated, running roughly twice twice what their target is for the overall inflation, I think that it's a concern, and I think this is why I don't think the Fed's going to cut rates in March.
2: Mark, so as we, I guess, move forward with this year, right, and as you said, it is an election year, so I know some people are considering that as well, but so far it seems like there's a lot of liquidity in the system. Look at the VIX. The VIX is still relatively low, and markets, even though they have shown some weakness to kick off the year, they're still hanging around right at near all-time highs how much do we need to focus on liquidity in the market? And how much liquidity do you think is even on the sidelines?
11: Yeah, we, we know there are a lot of people, right? And we've seen like record flows into the into the U.S. money markets. And, I, you know, I, I mentioned this off mic, that I had uh, spoke at a risk uh, managers uh, association meeting uh, earlier this week. and And one of the big talking points was how resilient the markets have been in the face of these uh, escalating hotspots like in the Middle East. Uh, And also think about what's going on in Ukraine. I mean, uh, the U.S. and uh, Europe struggling to give Ukraine more uh, aid and weapons, and uh, Ukraine having difficulty recruiting more soldiers. And uh, so Russia seems to be playing this game of uh, attrition, and they've stepped up their attacks. And there's other little conflicts. I mean, I I think that the... uh, the uh, Iran Corporation might have had an assessment of over 100 like modest conflicts taking place around the world right now. So it seems to me like the world's very danger- in a dangerous position. I'm struck by the, uh, uh, on a Wednesday, the Financial Times had three articles, three articles that caught my eye, to say. One is the claim that this, what we're going through now, is the most elevated global stress, geopolitical stress since the end of World War II. And then they also noted that last year was the warmest record, the warmest year on record. And then there was a third article that caught my eye, all on the same day, of course. And this was that the crypto and uh, uh, like fintech was fined by the U.S. more last year for the first time than the mainstream uh, financial system for lax compliance and so i think we, we live in a dangerous world but you can't know you won't notice that by looking at the capital markets where the nasdaq is up uh three percent this week uh the, the japanese stock market the nikai is at 30 year plus highs up almost seven percent year to date so yeah i think that it's hard to measure the kind of this kind of liquidity but i do see a lot of money still on the sidelines and uh, I, I i'm just thinking about money markets and short-term, um, those who did buy money markets, a lot of people bought bills directly from the federal, from the Treasury. So I'm concerned that this is really a liquidity-driven
4: market rather than a fundamentally-driven market. Mark, I think that's an interesting point. And really, all things, con- all things considered, it's crazy that the markets are up as much as they are, not just U.S. markets, but many global markets. It's also crazy that oil is not up more. Uh, it, so it's crazy the markets are up, but that oil isn't in the face of all this geopolitical tension, as well as just some of the uh, different machinations from OPEC and the supply cuts and the supposed coming cuts. But one thing that's usually a gauge of volatility is the U.S. dollar. And over the last week, it's barely moved. It's hanging out around 102.15 here on Friday. What do you make of the fact that markets are healthy, the oil markets aren't, and the dollar is flat?
11: Yeah, the dollar is flat. You know, we spent this whole week uh, within the range that we set last Friday on the dollar index. I, I sort of think about this as a, a parallel would be, you know, that old, uh, that old myth, King Midas, Greek mythology. Remember, he was being punished by the gods, and everything he touched turned to gold. I mean, who would want that? Doesn't it sound great? Until he tried to eat some food, drink some wine, and hug his daughter. And I think that that's our curse, really, is that there's a lot of important things that take place that just aren't reflected in the markets. And I think that uh, partly it's, it's how the markets really work. What is relevant to the markets right now is central bank policy, market positioning. And we saw, you know, the, the dollar index fell from, say, on early November from 107 and fell to below 101. Let's call it a 6% move in the last two months of last year. And so I had anticipated a bounce, and we got that bounce, but we've really gone sideways this week. We really made the high last Friday a little bit above 103. I'm thinking that the dollars, this correction after falling uh, in November and December is not over. To me, the, so I, I'm looking for another leg up in the dollar, and that I think could take us up to 103.5 to 104 area on a dollar index. If I'm wrong, which is always a possibility, of course, I think that. Uh, it means that uh, we have to go back down and test it one-on-one
2: area. So as much as you still see weakness in the dollar, it does still seem with your targets that the dollar will be mostly range-bound, probably with a bias to the downside, which is interesting because, look, we carry that over to markets, and markets have been... Uh, Well, an upward biased, as the dollar has corrected. And quite frankly, there are a lot of markets here that, while they seem to have lost some of their momentum to the upside, because a lot of markets were going to the upside, they're still hanging around some of these higher levels, just like the dollar hanging around some of its lower levels. It's been an interesting start to the year so far here, Mark. And look, if the dollar keeps selling off or if it does move lower, that could be good for market. Something that we will get into in our final segment of the weekend. Show focused a bit more on market reactions and even what else you're looking for in the next couple of weeks. So everyone, stick around. We're going to be right back with Mark Chen. for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit gcnlive.com today.
0: Do you know someone with a drug or alcohol problem? Get help now. Insurance may cover everything. Stop the drug and alcohol nightmare. Call 800-284-0523. Learn how through the Family Medical Leave Act, you can leave your job without losing your job. Locations everywhere. Get immediate help for drug and alcohol problems. Call now. 800-284-0523. 800-284-0523.
7: If you're concerned about the power grid and want to generate your own supply of off-grid electricity, this will be the most important message you'll hear this year. Here's why
10: unmarked boxes go to mypatriotsupply.com today time is running out to prepare for what's coming mypatriotsupply.com
12: i'm ben utek i played high school college and pro football helping my team win the 2006 championship it was an amazing day but it can't compare to the joy i feel every day with my loving wife and three beautiful daughters my football career ended after I suffered my fifth concussion. Did you know that over a million athletes suffer a concussion each year? That includes boys and girls, every age, every type and level of sport. It isn't always clear that a player has had a concussion. So parents, athletes and coaches need to learn about concussion signs and symptoms. The American Academy of Neurology recommends athletes thought to have a concussion be immediately removed from play and not returned until assessed by a healthcare care professional trained in concussion. This isn't just about sports. It's about your brain. When in doubt, sit it out. Learn more at aan.com/concussion. That's aan.com/concussion. A message from the American Academy of Neurology.
2: Segment of the first hour of the weekend edition of the KE Report. We are continuing to chat with Mark Chandler, managing partner at Bannockburn Global Forex. Now, Mark, let's switch our focus a little bit to the geopolitical factors driving markets. There are two wars ongoing, which the markets seem to largely ignore right now. However, on Friday, we did get some action in, you could say, gold in some of the other areas, again, on the back of that inflation data, too, that reacted at least a little bit to uh, the wars, again, that are continuing here. Are markets now just so big, almost a beast on their own, that geopolitics and we can include the election they don't seem to have such a big impact at least right now
11: yeah i think i think so i mean i think that you uh, know with gold i mean i'm not sure uh, i actually sort of would say that gold is sort of like caught in between the geopolitics especially in the middle east which should be good for gold you'd imagine and the drop in u.s rates as i mentioned the two-year note yield is off about in the u.s off about 20 basis points this week and, and, and uh, holding everything else, you know, constant, if you would tell me U.S. yields off 20 basis points, I'd be more bullish gold, too. What strikes me, though, about what you say about the geopolitics is this weekend on the 13th, Taiwan has an election. It seemed to be a very important election, uh, partly because, the, of course, this is the Taiwanese issue is key. China continues to at least aerial harass Taiwan. Uh, there's been a stepped-up cyber attacks. And yet the Taiwanese stock market is flat this week. No real impact on Taiwanese stocks. And if anything, they've held up better than Korean stocks, which are off like 2%, and Chinese mainland stocks off about one and a third percent. So I think, yeah, it's a sort of a, a bit of an enigma, a little about why the, uh, how well the markets have been holding up, uh, despite what seems to be a deterioration in geopolitics. I, I think that it's telling us that people who are voting with their pocketbook are not focused so much on geopolitics. They, they don't see it really affecting the kind of drivers like interest rates or inflation, even though there could be some more sustained disruptions to supply chains.
4: Mark, just a quick follow-up on some of the Asian markets. While the Chinese markets had a rough go of it, you know, in general, the Japanese markets, the Korean markets, the Philippine markets have all done pretty good. What do you make of the strength in the Asian markets? Is that something where... Uh, Westerners are looking at some of these, uh, it kind of, there's a, there's a lot of Asian emerging market funds you can buy, but are they looking at these economies and maybe ETFs and businesses within those economies as potentially having more upside than some of the economies in the West, or how do you read that?
11: Yeah, I, I, Chad, I kind of think that the uh, Asian markets, uh, are really off to, leaving aside, china and some of the small ones uh, but i'm looking at some pretty serious losses from uh, not only what i'd call the greater china hang sing in hong kong chinese markets the the mainland stocks that trade in hong kong down 5% but taiwan off 2.3% year to date so most of that took place in the first week of the year korea down Four point nine percent. I think this is a. Uh, this is. I, I think it's really like people t- liquidating after last year's rally, uh, looking for better levels to get back involved with. Taiwan and Korean exports have have until very recently been weak, and of course they're dragged down by the weakness in in China, who by the way earlier today came out with a, a decent trade number showing an increase in both exports and imports. But so I, I, I too am thinking about like how we how are we going to uh, manage the portfolio this year. And I think that the dollar is still well overvalued. So even though I'm looking for a near-term dollar uh, recovery, I, I think that, do- that these foreign currencies like Japan, the Eurozone, very cheap uh, relative to the dollar on a, on a fundamental basis. Uh, the problem, though, I think, is that we still are growing. It looks to me like the U.S. economy probably is growing around 2% uh, in Q4. And this is still well above um, most of the other, most of like, say the U.S. rivals are other you know other like large economies, and so I think this is what's uh, uh, I think people are preferring uh, the, the, the U.S. stock market, I think, and Japan to everybody else.
2: So one big theme that we were talking about over the last almost two years now was that investors did have an alternative outside of the markets because of money market funds, higher-yielding, safer instruments that money did rotate into as markets were correcting, but now that markets bounced back so strong last year, still holding around all-time highs, and it does seem like the the buy-the-dip mentality is back. Mark, do you think there is an alternative for investors outside of the markets?
11: I think cash. I mean, you think about taking no risk, give your money to the U.S. government for it, it, six months, five point two percent, without taking much risk. If you want to lock it in for a year, four point six percent. If we knew that we could take, we could lock in five percent until the middle of the year. It seems, that seems attractive to a lot of people still. So I think that a lot of money on the sidelines. I think stock market valuation, people are concerned. Typically, the stocks uh, rally ahead of the earnings season, which you note is beginning, kicking off uh, with the financial institutions uh, this week, and industrials beginning next week. Uh, so I, I think, I mean, that's what I've done, too, for the first time, I think, in uh, in years, putting more money into fixed income, just trying to lock some of these high re- high yields in place uh, for a bit. Uh, while I, while I'm concerned that if the U.S. if the reason the Federal Reserve is going to be cutting interest rates and the eurozone cutting interest rates is because the economies are weakening, I'm not sure that stocks are necessarily the best place to be in right away. So I'm, I'm trying to like bide my time, but I, I do think that the yields of basically cash is still paying.
4: Well, Mark, speaking of yields, a lot has been made recently, and I've seen probably four or five articles in the last two days about the yield curve potentially flattening in 2024 and what that may mean as far as economic contractions. Uh, right now, it's still inverted. It's been inverted for a while. It's been in, inverted for more than a year where the, the short term has got higher rates and uh, yields than the longer term bonds. But if that does invert, Do you think it necessarily means we're going to have that recession that everybody has now assumed is is off the books and we've had the soft landing? Or do you think that it is important as the yield curve does flatten in 2024, if that happens, is that a signal investors should be cautious of?
11: Yeah, I think that's a really good point you raise. I think many people think that an inverted yield curve is is what tips us into recession, but when when I look at the charts of it, it seems to me more likely, uh, more common for what happens is when the curve is inverted, yes, the economy is slowing, but it re-inverts, but it re-steepens. Uh, that is when you get the economic crunch. And right now, the yield curve, about minus 20 basis points. That's looking at the 2 to the 10, so the, the uh, coupon part of the curve, the uh, meat of it. We, we did, we were at about 15 basis points last October. And so I think we need to see something like that. But I'm concerned that, I know a lot of people have come around to the soft landing, and that's what scares me. Uh, anybody, I shouldn't say anybody, a lot of people were in the recession camp, uh, and now they just like shifted sides. And I, I just think that what happens is sort of like in a parade, when you're out of step with the rest of the parade and you try to catch up. Sometimes you're still out of step, even when you try to catch up. And I think that's what the market is doing. And so for me, I think that the risks of a recession increase late this year, early next year. But right now, the economy does seem to have a sufficient momentum, where it's growing above what the Federal Reserve says is what they call trend growth, which is really the non-inflationary pace, which is about 1.8%.
2: Yeah, these recession calls do just keep on getting pushed back, but we will get a recession. The question is just when. So, Mark, in terms of next week, then what data do we have to watch out for? Is there anything in the next couple weeks that could move markets or could actually set up another trend?
11: So, next week, I, I think that we, you know, we, our attention turns back to the real sector for the U.S we We have to uh you know as we look towards the second half of this month, of course, this is when all the central banks really meet I think, well not all of them but the Federal reserve the e c b the Bank of Japan, the Bank of canada i i th- I think that this is sort of the uh we're sort of in an like an interregnum period, sort of the central banks have signaled more or less that they 're done raising interest rates uh, they have not signaled that they, they when they 're going to cut rates, but it 's clear that they are going to cut rates that'll be the next move from the major central banks, and so i don 't think that I think that the next six weeks, say second half of January through February now, is sort of this in-between period where markets could be choppy. And then we get into March. I think that's when people are really making these bets about central bank rate cuts. And so that's when I think the volatility increases and this uh, choppiness maybe gives way to a trend.
2: Okay, Mark, thank you for your insights. It's always great chatting with you to end the week especially on a week like this week where inflation data and then some geopolitics perked up and got some markets moving it is the end of the week so now we need to wait until monday to see if any of these moves will actually carry through and who knows what news we're going to get geopolitics wise over the weekend Mark, thank you very much for your time. Everyone, if you want to keep up to date with Mark, check out his website, marktomarket.com. And please go through our website, kereport.com, and podcast The K.E. Report to listen to all the daily editorials and company updates we recorded throughout the week. I hope you all have a great rest of your weekend.
1: For our upcoming appearance schedule, visit kereport.com. The Corlin Economics Report will be back in just a moment.